Hello, and welcome to Raising the O.C. Bar, a podcast about the rich and unique history of the Orange County, California legal community. From landmark cases to impactful institutions to legal trailblazers, Raising the O.C. Bar spotlights events and stories that have shaped the Orange County legal community. Assisting the community is baked into the mission of the OCBA. So today we're here to talk about Community Legal Aid SoCal, one of the most impactful institutions in the Orange County legal community, dedicated to meeting the needs of low-income people throughout Orange and Southeast Los Angeles counties. Today, we're going to be talking about the history of Community Legal Aid SoCal, including its connection with the Orange County Bar Association and the positive impact Community Legal Aid SoCal has had in meeting the legal needs of low-income individuals. I'm Michael Gregg. I'm your 2023 OCBA president, and I'll be your host today, along with Nikki, Nikki Miliband, 2018 OCBA president. Nikki? Hi, I'm Nikki Miliband, and as Michael said, I'm the I was the 2018 president of the OCBA, and I was the 2019 president of the Orange County Bar's Charitable Fund, and I'm the current president-elect of CLA SoCal. So thank you for being here. We have the privilege of being joined by an all-star group of individuals <laughs> who have a deep understanding of community legal aid SoCal's history, and thank you all so much for being with us today. Uh, before we begin the discussion, I'd like to have our speakers introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Bob Cohen, and I was the director of uh, what what then was LASOC, Legal Aid Society of Orange County, um, from uh, 1980 until 2016. Uh, before that, I was with the National Senior Citizens Law Center for uh, for about five years. And before that, in my legal services career, I was at Clark County Legal Services in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hi, I'm Helen Slater, and uh, I am retired, but I was formerly the chief executive officer and jury commissioner for the Orange County Superior Court and served with the court for uh, over 36 years. Hello, I'm Kate Marr. I am the current executive director at Community Legal Aid SoCal. I have been in this role since January of 2017. Um, I am what you would call legal aid lifer. Prior to that, I worked at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles for about 16 years and then a couple of other legal aid positions, but this has been my uh, lifelong work. Hi, I'm Mary Lou Cherner. And I'm probably one of the longest legal aid lifers. I started at Legal Aid in 1974, and I retired in 2019. So I worked for Legal Aid for 45 years. I came on board with John McDonald and then transitioned to work with Bob Cohen. And I've also worked with uh, Kate Marr and enjoyed every bit of it. Thank you. Hi, I'm... Uh... John McDonald, uh, I had the honor of uh, being the um, executive director of Legal Aid of Orange County, as it was Society of Orange County, as it was then called, in 19, from 1972 to about 1978. 
went on and was recruited to go to D.C. to take over the management training and management development for the country for legal services uh, until uh, a certain president came in and uh, that whole uh, function was uh, wiped out. Um, I have two quick things I'd like to say. One is to thank uh, Michael, Nikki, and the bar. Uh, we won't get a chance probably as we go through, but thank you for doing this. And most importantly, thank the bar. There was an extraordinary support for legal services to the poor throughout the 70s when I was there. Uh, and my other thought is to thank Mary Lou and Crystal. Um, they are the heart and soul, an example of the heart and soul of a legal services program. Uh, they were there for decades. I was there for, I guess, one decade total. So mm -hmm. I will always be in deep appreciation for they, uh, their services and those like them, uh, including, I gather, Kate, uh, from, for that kind of approach to, uh, and dedication. I'm Crystal Sims. I started Legal Aid in February of 1975. It was my first legal job, and I loved every minute of it. It was a wonderful place to work and gave me wonderful opportunities to do work that I loved. I retired in 2013, sort of, but I kept doing pro bono work uh, at Legal Aid until about 2020. And I'm still doing pro bono work at Western Center on Law and Poverty. Thank you all for being here. Uh, so throughout this discussion, we may use the term CLA SoCal, Legal Aid, or LASOC, all referring to the same organization, uh, which has uh, changed names uh, over the years. Uh, but I want to start by talking about the OCBA's connection to Community Legal Aid SoCal. So as I understand it, in the 1950s, the OCBA developed a legal aid and lawyer referral service for indigent Orange County residents. And in 1958, the OCBA's legal aid program was incorporated as a separate entity under the name Legal Aid Society of Orange County, which was later changed to uh, CLA SoCal. Uh, what led to the legal aid program uh, within the OCBA become a becoming a separate standalone organization? And for that, we'll lean on John, Alan, and or Mary Lou. Well, I'd be happy to lead off on that. I, uh, um, the, I did some research and I went back into the OCBA had a a publication prior to OC Lawyer, which was called the Orange County Bar uh, Association Bulletin. And I researched the 1950s editions, monthly editions of those uh, of those publications. And uh, one of the things that uh, it was clear is that um, uh, in the 1950s, Orange County was starting to be just starting to become the fastest growing county in the nation. Uh, the population was growing, the economy was was thriving, and the housing industry was was exploding. And uh, so with all the addition of people, um, there was uh, uh, the the tradition of the Orange County Bar Association um, who had uh, taken on the role of making sure that 
the legal needs of uh, those who were disadvantaged and not able to afford a lawyer would be met by clinics and pro bono services uh, and, and assisting the community in, in resolving those things. Uh, they, for example, they uh, all the way back in 1943, OCBA convinced the Orange Forest Supervisors to appoint a public defender for criminal defendants. Um, and then uh, in uh, the 50s, a committee of the OCBA, uh, which uh, had, interestingly enough, had members Mark Soden and Robert Korfman, who went on to become Superior Court judges, and I had the pleasure of working with them in the 70s. Uh, we also had attorneys Fred Dudley, Bob Fraser, uh, Art Nissen, and Art Lawner. And they basically sent um, a, uh, a memo to all of the lawyers in the county, and there was maybe 250 lawyers at that time, and said that we really need to have a legal aid and lawyer reference uh, service where uh, the potential clients can be evaluated uh, for their need and uh, and that the lawyers would um, volunteer to uh, to be pro bono uh, attorneys for um, the uh, the people who need it. Um, and so they announced that program and then uh, set up a an office on on North Main Street in Santa Ana. and uh, that office was, uh, staffed by a terrific group of volunteers uh, who was called, uh, starting in 1956, the Orange County Bar Association Auxiliary. Um, and it became better known as the Lawyers' Wives of Orange County. Uh, and the, the really the lawyer, wives of lawyers, the um, wives of many of the judges, um, basically volunteered to take on the role of evaluating the, taking the calls and evaluating the client's potential and what, um, and then referring out to either a lawyer's reference service or to, um, or to the, for pro bono um, services. So that, uh, that was the creation of um, BioCBA of the first legal aid uh, uh, program. And um, then the the reference program also created a source of income, um, uh, even though the the clients were uh, low income clients for the most part. Um, the every member of the Orange County Bar Association pledged to financial support for the program, and in the in, in the beginning, that's what created the funding. To go ahead and uh, and then in um, in uh, May of nineteen May 9th of nineteen fifty eight, uh, the Legal Aid Society was actually incorporated in California as a nonprofit uh, public corporation, and um, it was um, uh, Art Nissen, who later became president of OCPA, mm -hmm. wrote the Articles of Incorporation. And they hired their first part-time attorney, who was Pat Herzog, who Bob and I both had an opportunity to, you know, to work with uh, over time. And um, 
And then, uh, you know, they, they're, and I, I, Bob has more information about how the financial end of, of it uh, worked. And Mary Lou, of course, have, have those, uh, because the OCBA would collect fees, like $5 uh, a case. And uh, uh, then the lawyer reference service would, uh, would would charge uh, uh, the lawyers some fees, and that was came folded back into the budget of the Legal Aid Society of Orange County for many years. Yeah, just a, a quirky little footnote uh, to the start of uh, uh, Legal Aid, uh, Alan. Um, I remember reading the minutes. It was uh, it was a long ago when it was doing some research for a meeting. And in 1952, there was a representative of what was then called the um, uh, National Legal Aid Association. Um, It was before it became National uh, Legal Aid and Defender Association, came out and met with the um, executive committee of the bar. And the discussion was about doing exactly what our bar did, which was create a lawyer's referral service to fund a legal aid. But the background was that at the time, remember it was 1952, the bar was, um, uh, and this was coming out of Washington too, um, was quite suspicious of uh, what might happen if all the local bars did not get busy and create their own legal aids. They were worried um, after the uh, after President Truman had um, uh, suggested having a uh, um, a a deduction for medical services. The bar was worried that um, uh, they would look at legal services next and they wanted to get ahead of any possible national effort to create a legal services program. So nationwide, they were trying to uh, uh, um, uh, engender some enthusiasm for the idea of uh, each local bar creating a uh, legal services program and a convenient way of funding that would have been um, uh, lawyers referral service, which uh, um, we did. Um, It it took a couple of years, but we did that. Um, But that was the context of the time. Mary Lou, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, but I, I think uh, maybe uh, John does. But I, I would say when I came on board in 1974, um, the primary funding for uh, LASOC was the Bar Association. They were providing $100,000 a year, and that money did come through um revenue that they earned from the lawyer's referral service. And uh, the next uh, highest funder was the Office on Equal Opportunity, which was about $89,000. So you can see that the bar carried in large part the, uh, you know, the efforts of legal aid through their funding. So so focusing a little bit on the legal aid, um, legal aid's relationship with the OCBA. Um, It's my understanding that the bylaws stated that the immediate past president of the OCBA 
would be president of legal aid? How, how did that work? Uh, you know, that worked fine. Uh, the bylaws at that time called for that. And, and I think that was, you know, something that the Bar Association was interested in. And, and by and large, since the bar was supportive of legal services, that worked out fine for us. Eventually, uh, the bylaws changed because I think funding from the Legal Services Corporation started to require uh, what a legal aid board should look like. And so they were mandating certain things. So at that time, uh, we changed the bylaws and um, the past bar president no longer had to be the president. But the bar still had a, a substantial impact on the direction because I think 60% of the members of the board of directors were appointees from the Orange County Bar Association. So um, that, you know, that was understood. A lot of times, I think Kate mentioned, we kind of selected to some extent attorneys that would be interested in doing that. But then the bar also had attorneys that were interested in participating in the, you know, in the directory and the direction of, uh, of legal aid. Hey, Mary Lou, do you remember how much money each attorney was donating uh, uh, to support legal aid? Because my recollection is it was an incredible amount compared to um, uh, what uh, today's dollars are. Um, and I think the bar really deserves credit for um, uh, uh, being such strong supporters of having a, a local legal aid program. I don't know exactly how much that was, but I understand that by the time I came on board, I think the the uh, lawyers referral service had a reserve of a, almost a million dollars. And so uh, what they did was I think that there was a ruling by the state bar that that money couldn't be used by the bar association for their specific activities, that the money had to be used to fund some type of legal pro bono services. And so the bar was fine with that. And then that's when they started their commitment to fund us at $100,000 a year. And they did that for, I think it was 10 years. I can add a little perspective on that. And I, I, my colleagues throughout the country <laughs> uh, look at scans at what the Orange County Bar Association did for legal services. Um, it, it is rare. The, uh, we needed to build some stability in the 70s. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later. But, but understand that, that that was the request that I and uh, some others made is let's get, take that whole reserve committed over time to legal aid. Because while they couldn't use it for themselves, the bar could use it for any kind of uh, pro bono service, which might be very popular. They didn't. They chose to give it to legal aid for the poor. And it's a it's a record, I believe, in the United States. Alan, earlier you talked about the lawyers' wives, and I've I've uh, read about the lawyers' wives. But if you all can like just tell us more about this group, um, who were they? What what they did? You touched up on it, Alan, but I'm wondering if we could sort of dig sure more sure the. Uh... You know, the the uh, some very, very dedicated volunteers were the, the wives of, uh, of lawyers and and many, many judges uh, on the Superior Court and and on the municipal courts. And I know I through all the 70s, I had the great pleasure of working with them uh, in addition to all the work that they did in, 
in the early days to support uh, on a you know completely uh, voluntary basis the you know the lawyer referral service and the um, and the legal aid services. Uh, they also um, started doing court tours for for students uh, for for classes of students, taking them through the courthouse and and creating a script uh, so that they would get some education about the justice system. And um, they also were extremely helpful uh, for me, particularly in recruiting prospective grand jurors from all their their social activities as well as their their volunteer work uh, in the community. Um, they were a huge source of uh, of referring uh, uh, grand jury candidates. That is a a tough job to do for the jury commissioner every year, and they were extremely helpful. And I enjoyed many years of of working closely with them, and uh, they were always there to help uh, do whatever volunteer stuff the court or or the bar uh, needed to be done. I would, yeah, they were still doing some uh, uh, intake for legal aid when I got there in 1980. So they, they must have been working with uh, you, John, huh? Absolutely. Uh, and I would add two perspectives on that. One is absolutely everything that Alan has said. Number, they were just amazing. Two, they were also our kind of our auditors because they, as husbands and spouses of the attorneys, the private attorneys, were also making sure that the people that needed the legal services and had the funds would not be abusing the system. So that was a very convenient side effect of it. But the other side of it, from my perspective, is the role of women. The reason why, I don't know the reason why they changed the name for sure, but I can guarantee you that what was happening is those were who are secretaries and 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 lawyers' wives and volunteers were no longer able to do those kind of things because what happened? They became the lawyers. Uh, and during that period of time, when uh, people uh, that I knew uh, and were two or three people in the public defender's office, my like my wife, two or three, the first women in law school, like my wife and others that we knew, uh, th- that was that was the change. That was the transformation of the seventies uh, in the in the terms of gender. It also, by the way, a last thing is on this. It's also relevant to the clients. The women, particularly in the, in Orange County, it wasn't. A, we didn't have a lot of generational poor. I would think that's a fair statement. Uh, it was a relatively somewhat more than the country wealthy county, but there were but women were the majority of the clients, and many of them were clients who caught, were caught in the situation of being what we call a divorce. The lawyers call it a divorce. I call it the loss of all your resources, uh, because from the client's <laughs> yeah. perspective, that's what the hell was happening. Uh, and so uh, the lawyers, the clients needed help to make a transition, uh, and that transition was the assistance of legal aid. Some people laugh at lawyer, uh, 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 domestic cases for for uh, for legal aids. But I noticed then, Kate, Kate, one of the beautiful quotes on the front of your, I think it was the 22 report just last year, was an example of a woman who had, had been caught in exactly this kind of situation. I forget whether she just, it was just an amazing emotional statement. Uh, and when we talk about impact, we just have to remember what impact means to those people including particularly women in those days. So you're definitely speaking my language as a former family law attorney. So I I appreciate that. Um, I I definitely think 
um, it is it is still sort of the bread and butter of what we do as an organization today and really critical um, to the work. So thank you. So Mary Lou, staying with the 70s, what were the different kinds of services that were offered by legal aid in the 70s? Well, we had uh, primarily it was direct services and a large portion of our caseload was family law. Uh, and then um, housing issues, mostly unlawful detainers. Government benefits were uh, a big thing. And then uh, consumer issues. Uh, I think that was uh, primarily the caseload. But I think uh, John had really something to add about this whole concept of what we started to do in the 70s. And, and I'd like to let him basically talk about that. Well, we we all lived it. Um, and uh, thank you, Mary Lou. Uh, the, I'd like to make a personal comment first on it. There's two transformations that I saw in uh, in the 70s, lived with. my I keep mentioning my wife, and it's not an accident. We've been together since we were 14. We're now both 83 years old. And okay. um, Barb became an attorney. Uh, I won't go through any of that history, but she ended up number one in law school, was the editor of the first review for Pepperdine, which is now in the top quarter in law schools in the nation, talking about transformations. Uh, and uh, and she was uh, one of the first public defenders, first group of public defenders in Orange County. Uh, and the, the, the she lived through that on the criminal side of this transformation that was going on. That's number one. And I will ever, obviously, our family and, and I will never forget the partnership and the love that we have. The, the second piece of it is Wally Davis. Uh, Wally was my uh, was a was a my part was not my partner. I was his. Uh, uh, I came into his law firm as a as a an attorney, and uh, Wally was the first or second Mexican American attorney in Orange County. He was, I believe, the first man of Native American descent to practice law in Orange County. He was a key in the affiliate of the Orange County Bar Association, which is, I think it's called the Latino Bar Association. Uh, and, and he was the one who won the case uh, like Pat did for the uh, for family law. He did for the uh, inappropriate classification of a, what they call discriminatory ability grouping. That is by, by grouping people by their language and saying they had no had low IQ. My wife did a, particular, a similar case for a person who was institutionalized because of hearing. But the point is that he, he was just an astonishing human being and a leader uh, of the, in, the, in the bar association through the affiliate side. Um, and so the, and they knew the transformation. They lived the transformation. Uh, and I would, in, in the transformation itself, the setting, remember, this was the 60s and the 70s. We think it's radical today. But the 60s and the 70s were, were incredible years, uh, revolutionary years for the for transformation of our society. Uh, and uh, that transformation was showing itself here in Orange County. Uh, the, this was considered Reagan country. It was considered Nixon country. It was considered Goldwater country. We even had a thing in the 70s called the, the Orange Curtain. Uh, we didn't have it. Uh, it was in the newspapers. It was... It was kind of a thing that you you know uh, the people in LA thought the people in Orange County were X 
And the people in Orange County thought the people in L.A. were why. And they had this image of this imaginary curtain, which acted as a cultural barrier between the two uh, counties. So it was in this spirit that the 70s uh, and uh, uh, these things were happening across the uh, in, in Orange County and across the country. And California exported much of that so that when I went to uh, legal services in 1979, uh, I was recruited to go in there. Uh, three years later, Reagan uh, appointed someone who then immediately tried to shut down legal services for the poor and shut down, as I mentioned earlier, all of the training programs for the whole country. Um, before that, Nixon in 74 had done the same thing through one of his people to shut down legal, to attempt to shut down legal services in 74, which was the first part of when I started working in Orange County. So uh, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Maybe you all have individual stories from that time, but it was a very difficult, challenging, and and uh, and, and and a, and a wonderful time to live in if you uh, if you could find ways to make the system work uh, for yeah. poor. It's as I recall, John. Um, before it was uh, the Legal Services Corporation, and and it was OEO Legal Services. Um, uh, Nixon Nixon appointed uh, Donald Rumsfeld uh, to run it. Yep. And his deputy was Dick Cheney. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the history that that I, I recall, um, Rumsfeld actually tried to work out some kind of compromise with these radical attorneys so that the program would actually work. But after a little while, he gave up. He realized that we were really um, in a, a different uh, um, place than uh, he, he thought we should be. And uh, as you said, um, uh, it was it was not um, it, um, it it was not an easy transition for uh, conservatives getting used to legal services. But you know, uh, uh, politics aside, I think uh, we have to give uh, Nixon some credit. Um, mm -hmm. He first vetoed the Legal Services Corporation Act, um, but then. Um, I think it was about two or three weeks before he resigned. He actually signed it into law in the opposition. I mean, he had a ton of opposition from very conservative uh, uh, congressmen, but he did. Uh, he, he he did sign what became the Legal Services Corporation. And um, I don't know what would have happened if he had refused to do that. Bringing it back to Orange County, which is the whole point of this discussion, uh, remember that at the same time uh, in the 70s, revenue sharing was uh, was uh, created. I think it was Nixon also on that. But the, the vast majority of places in the country uh, would not give that money, of course, to a legal services mm -hmm. program. But here in Orange County, with the backing of the Bar Association uh, throughout this whole period, lived I lived this period, uh, we we got the largest, I believe, the largest allocation of revenue sharing funding in the country, uh, some three hundred thousand dollars. Now we're up into millions. We're talking petty cash, even at seventy dollars, from what Kate is dealing with these days. But in those days, that was was a shock, uh, and we were able to open four offices in Orange County uh, by, which is a, a subject for a little bit longer, a little bit later here. 
but but the point is that uh, that even though those things were happening, that's the magic of Orange County. The magic of Orange County is that somehow or another, all of us working together, uh, uh, you know, were able to 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 bring and keep and expand uh, the core services. And when people tried to shut us down, uh, even in Orange County and the revenue sharing money and the local money, uh, the bar stepped in with Bill Winky, as I recall. Crystal knows uh, some of those stories. Barry Lou does. Uh, these people spoke up in strongest terms. And in Orange County, they would have been determined, unfortunately. Uh, and they were, and the bar. So I, there is this. Full, it comes full circle. As long as you don't characterize people by their politics, as long as you look and fi- try to find ways to communicate and find people of good faith, regardless of what the perspective is, I believe that legal services for the poor will succeed, even in places that otherwise uh, it, it appears on the surface that's impossible. And I think Bob and uh, and I know all just the people involved here know that they've done it. Uh, Bob has stories about that. Mary Lou has, Crystal does, uh, and and how we were able to, they were able to continue on long after I left. You know, John, um, you mentioned a minute ago, uh, Wally Davis, um, you know, one of our affiliate bar associations, the Hispanic Bar Association still has the Wally Davis, um, Davis Memorial Scholarship Fund. I just wanted to as an aside to let you know that. That's right. And he and his seven children, I, I you know, just amazing people. Is uh, They're just, it's an incredible family and a, and a dedicated human being. So I, I John, Mary Lou, we, you talked about the, the 70s, and I imagine the, uh, the staffing that existed at Legal Aid in the 70s is, is nowhere what it is today. Talk to us about what, what that was like, um, the size of the staffing and and uh, that existed in the 70s and, and how you were able to accomplish what you did. Mary Lou, could you start with some of that and then I'll give them some of the perspective on what we are, what our approach was? Right. So uh, when we received that revenue sharing money, I mean, one of our major goals was to create access for legal services. We had, before we received that revenue sharing money, we actually had only one office. We had a handful of attorneys. And with that revenue sharing money, we were able to create access by adding offices strategically in Orange County. That included uh, Huntington Beach, Westminster, La Habra, and Anaheim. And we tried our hardest to put one in Southeast County but uh, one of the mandates required by the uh, the revenue sharing money was that each city or each community would have to donate the space. And we never got South County to donate space, which is kind of should have been predictive for us because they they really didn't necessarily want, uh, I hate to say it, poor people in their community. So they didn't necessarily want an office. Well, that but, was 1970 South County. for sure. Right, right. Not yet. Different today. But uh, anyway, so through this whole mechanism or philosophy that we wanted access for poor people to legal services to, you know, change their lives, basically, that money gave us the ability to do that because we were able to add full service offices, full service staffed offices 
in those other four communities. And, uh, you know, so it access was an issue, not just by having an officer, but people didn't have transportation. There was no technology in terms of doing online intake or anything like that. So that was our best effort to create that access. And Mary Lou, um, wasn't uh, at the time, wasn't that revenue sharing money um, more than any other sorts of funding that we were getting, including right. from the federal government? Yes, it was about, my recollection, it was about $325,000. And prior to that, our budget was probably somewhere around 200000 So you can see that it increased substantially, which uh, enabled us to, to basically staff those offices. I mean, we had attorneys from Harvard, from Stanford, from UCLA, you know, so it, it was an exciting time. People wanted to work in legal services. They liked the concept of access and providing free yeah. you know, civil legal services to communities. And if I can pick up then in the transition, there were two stages in the 70s. The first was, the fact is there were some certain things that occurred in the early 70s in legal, legal aid that um, just caused a disruption. And when I was uh, that that was one of the reasons the position was open and why uh, people some people suggested that I apply. Um, and uh, so we started from scratch, effectively, that, you know, just zero. Bad enough, it was small, but it was tiny. Um, but, so the first thing we had to do is get some stabilization. And we've talked about that. The stabilization that came from the bars being committed over a period of time, not to vary the amounts and to do it. Uh, the, the money that we went for for revenue sharing uh, the, the the whole idea of working with other community groups, but in the short term. The large term, the large picture of the 70s is something else. The large picture of the 70s was we had to find a way to rethink legal services, uh, in, in particular in Orange County, but I was training across the country, so I was exposed to the difficulties of, of uh, programs uh, all across the country. Uh, I was one of uh, just a team of trainers at that time. Uh, and and we realized how different everybody was. So what's the strategy for Orange County? And and so well, the first thing we decided uh, was we were going to focus on listening to the clients more than anyone else had ever done. We we had we directly went out and did a client survey, the first I believe independent survey in the country, uh, directly asking poor people uh, what they wanted to do in the way of services and what. And even asked them some questions between impact litigation and, and general service. It was fascinating. Uh, but it was all independently run. We also instituted client satisfaction questionnaires, where every person who touched legal aid was able to commit, was told, was given the opportunity to communicate back. And every one of those were read and reported on and were used to manage the whole of legal services during the 70s, even as small as it was. Um, and that, so the second one was, I'm only going to do this, eight of them, I'm only going to do quickly four. One, the second one was to change the focus to broadly results-oriented uh, vision mission. You know, we, it's kind of today passe to do that. Well, in the 50s and 60s, a uh, guy by the name of Drucker and his uh, colleagues came up with this idea of results-oriented management and getting a vision and a mission and so forth. And it went into the profit sector never really reached in the early days the nonprofit sector. 
we brought it into Orange County and started experimenting with it. What would it look like to ask, uh, you know, what's our real vision? What the hell are we here for? What are we trying to accomplish for the client community? And how do we use legal services, quote, resources to address those questions? Um, and the third one was the meaning of legal services. Legal services was not just, okay, I call up, I got a divorce problem, you know, or the lawyers have defined things and they're available for X or Y and not for Z and the next thing. Well, if I'm, if I can't get healthcare, I can't get healthcare. I don't give a damn if I may use those words, whether I have a, a legal right to it. I want to at least ask the question, is there something that's wrong in the, on, from a legal standpoint? Uh, and so we wanted a, every form we used, uh, we created newsletters. There was no social media. We created new, that newsletter, by the way, helped us. We didn't realize I never wrote it that way, but I actually got a call one day from a board of supervisor's office. And they said, you know, please stop these phone calls to us where, you know, we got the community's message. And they, and so they stopped. And I said, we're not, we're not trying to shut your phone system down. Uh, so I said, we'll stop. But the funding was never cut back in all of that time. Um, and lastly, it was the access that part that Mary Lou mentioned. It doesn't mean a thing to say you have a right on paper. Uh, the you know right to pursue life and happiness and you know, liberty and hap and life and happiness. It, 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 those are meaningless words unless you have access to the mechanisms, not just legal services, but all the mechanisms that are necessary to ensure that you have that ability in the community in your community. Uh, and we worked with the last four. I won't be listing as I say, but they had to do with how we collaborated with other institutions and organizations and with the community and so forth. So the 70s for, the, for legal aid was a period of time where we were experimenting with uh, all the vehicles we could come up with to translate what does it mean to help people uh, you know, achieve uh, their rights. Uh, as, I, as I frame it, uh, you know, it's, the, uh, it's the opportunity to, to actually be, to be empowered to, to live uh, and, and to uh, and thrive. Uh, Just a quick anecdote about that. Uh, I was uh, in the Board of Supervisors uh, chambers when they were basically, um, you know, firing on John uh, rapidly uh, about why on earth they are giving their revenue sharing money uh, to the Legal Aid Society of Orange County when he's going around threatening litigation over their lack of affordable housing as they were developing the Anaheim Hills area uh, and, and other areas in the county um, and the, that they weren't following state law and so forth. And uh, he was trying to to explain it in a, in a way that... Uh, as he just mentioned, uh, you know, uh, you know, following the law and and doing the right things right, and they didn't want to hear it. It was only their political view of, you know, why should they give money for this uh, for this noble function when when we were trying to uh, uh, constrain their decision making about, uh, you know, from all the. Um, campaign money that they would get from the developers, and yet, and yet, Alan, the beautiful thing about that is because of the support of the community and of the Orange County Bar Association, I cannot right. say enough about that. 
that those boats were 5-0 every yep. year. Yep. I think yep. the last year was four and one abstention for those funds. So it is possible to do it. And yeah. the last point I'll make on it, these threads, I call them threads uh, of strategies that are based upon results-oriented strategies. Uh, where are, you'll see them here as you go on to the next generations because my story's pretty much done. Uh, but their stories are not, Mary Lou and Bob and ultimately Kay. Uh, the, you know, the, those threads passed all through those periods in tremendously important ways, IOLTA being one of them, Bob. Uh, but hey, take over. Hey, John, I think, you know, at the time, um, you brought in um, a special grant from the Legal Services Corporation to um, undertake uh, the affordable housing uh, litigation, which, I mean, created went on for, for a generation. And I, I think oh, it's, it'd be an interesting story how the two really uh, interacted together, the, the local um, feeling about uh, providing legal aid, and then the national um, uh, impetus to get involved with uh, housing. Could uh, Mary Lou, John, uh, Crystal, do you remember um, what you did to get that uh, uh, earmark grant from the Legal Services Corporation? And what year was that? Bob, before they answer that, because I'll let that answer, I, I do want to say that I think it's even more important what you all did in terms of working with other groups, legal groups, and, and, and increasing the capacity. Crystal was deeply involved in that on health and another field, that, that this methodology uh, of integrating multiple sources of, of resources uh, you all used for the next uh, 30 years. But with that in mind, I don't remember the details on that grant specifically. So going back to the night during the 70s, and you're talking about staffing the different offices and so forth, what, what did that look like? How many people were are we talking about and, and, and who, who were these individuals? Did we get to 25 or so is all maybe Mary at the, at the end of the decade? Uh, the, attorneys and so, not paralegals. Yeah, because... By the end of the uh, the decade, we not only had money from um, the state, from the Orange County Bar Association, then we had money from the Legal Services Corporation, which replaced the money from the Office of Equal Opportunity. And then we received another grant, which was Title 3B, and that was services for senior citizens. So all of that funding uh, we received. And we actually doubled our staffing because we we started out with about six or seven attorneys. And then when we added four or five additional attorneys plus uh, support for those attorneys out of the, the main office with the managing attorney, I mean, we, double, we doubled our staffing. Uh, at the end of 1970, I, I don't recall exactly how many because by that point we were starting to look at, there was a substantial increase and uh, legal services funding. But then <laughs> in the early 80s, that was reduced substantially through, um, through Reagan. Is, is that right, John? I remember that. Well, two things. One, I doubt in answer to your question, uh, Nikki, I think we, I doubt if we ever made 20, 2025 uh, professionals, quote unquote, including because I consider the legal, the non legal, non attorney staff equally important. Um, uh, and the second thing is that. Um, 
the well, that that's the main answer. I, oh, I did, there was one other thing. By 2011, I was looking at the stats. By 2011, not before the COVID and before all the new stuff that's come in in recent years, the Doug on LSC Corporation money had gone from a peak in 1980, uh, if you use that as the base year, in those dollars by 2011 or 2012, it was down to 58%. So even though there were active movements in LSC level, federal level, uh, those that increment dropped to almost half. But then it was replaced ultimately by the work of people on this podcast and others uh, from all kinds of other sources. So we, we've talked about funding to some extent, um, in particular funding during, during the 70s. Mary Lou, Bob, and others, you, you mentioned revenue sharing. Um, could you just briefly tell us what, what that is and anything else you might want to add about sources of funding during the 70s? Mary Lou, you want to start on revenue sharing? Well, revenue sharing was uh, through the federal government. And what it was, was, I guess, tax dollars that the um, federal government wanted to share with the states and local governments. So there wasn't a requirement that it had to be for any specific thing, per se. It was supposed to be to meet, you know, community needs. Luckily, in Orange County, through our efforts with the uh, Board of Supervisors and the community, we actually were able to get a substantial amount of the revenue sharing money uh, for legal services, which I don't think was the case across the country. So that was how uh, revenue sharing basically came about. Yeah, As I recall, I think it was uh, one of Nixon's efforts initially. Um, and. Um, uh, I, I think you're right that it was it was quite un, unusual to to have the money um, filtered into uh, uh, legal services, um, and, and uh, you know we we also um, uh, when I came in we had inherited it from from you, John, um, the uh, uh, older Americans Act money, um, which um, was always there for us. It was like assumed. That uh, we would get that for uh, for legal services, and the um, I think a, a real tell on uh, on how that revenue sharing money worked um, was that when uh, uh, President Reagan's uh, administration um, uh, uh, attempted to uh, uh, pencil out uh, legal services uh, corporation funding, which they they really couldn't do, as John said, they. They reduced it some, but the the Reagan approach um, was let's put it into community um, funding, and if they want to fund legal services, local communities can fund legal services, which is uh, essentially how we got revenue sharing money. Um, it would not have been a a uh, a good uh, turn of events for uh, legal services nationwide, but we probably could have kept uh, um, a share of the money um, from the uh, county, although it would have been very questionable what we could have used it for because they were focusing on uh, on the work that Crystal was doing and not everyone was happy with it. One of the things about revenue sharing just a, a little bit was that um, the, the federal government wanted to fund 
down to local communities rather than going through the states um, and having the states, you know, have the say, the legislatures having the say as to what the money would be spent for. So that was the uh, that was how it got to the county and city level uh, um, for revenue sharing. And the, and eventually even the county um, had to share it all with the cities and the cities uh, created community development block grants, which is what it's being used for today. That That's a very good example of the, the situation. I mean, it's pretty obvious why that approach was generally used as against having a, na- a national level approach. Uh, but rather than take a negative view of it, the question is how does legal services as a program, as a concept, as a movement, uh, go with that, work out a way that you can set up, you can establish relationships like it happened in Orange County um, with the bar and with other groups, the community groups, such that 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 kind of approach is not as devastating as it is in certain other areas of the country. Uh, It just, it speaks to how you have to have a broad strategy of of how how to deal with a variety of circumstances and the changing pulse of a nation. Okay, switching now, um, I understand OCVA played a role in assisting the legal aid in purchasing uh, building or facilities. Can someone tell me about that? Um, we purchased a, our first building. What what year was that, um, Mary Lou? Um, over on uh, Main Street? 1985. 1985. Yeah, what we, what we used for a down payment um, was our LRS money and uh, our lawyers referral service money. And at the time that was, um, that was available because we had, um, made an agreement with, um, the, uh, OCBA, um, that we could, um, run, um, administer our own lawyers referral service. And that money was, um, uh, was available to us as a, a down payment for the uh, for the building, and I think that's how isn't that how we got our first uh, building, Mary Lou? Yes, we actually through the Orange County Bar Association the amount of revenue because it was kind of a revenue sharing with the bar association on the lawyer referral service. So when uh, I think in the in the early eighties. We actually agreed to, uh, because in the 80s, the lawyers' wives were no longer participating in making, in doing our eligibility screening, which was what they did prior to that. And then they would make referrals to the lawyer referral service for those people that were exceeded our guideline and then make appointments for uh, clients that were eligible for legal aid. So as part of that agreement, the Bar Association agreed, because now we were doing our own eligibility screen, they agreed to pay us for every referral we made. And so they did that for a while. And then eventually, uh, they they weren't able to, or for some reason, the Bar Association pulled out of that agreement. But we actually had an understanding with them that we would create our own lawyer referral service. And maybe Bob has a little more history about that, but but that's my memory. And by creating our own lawyers referral service, 
that's where we were able to generate private funds to put down on uh, on our first office building. Uh, yeah, um, we um, um, we were at first when when I came, we were getting money from uh, from the the OCBA, and um, uh, the OCBA wanted to make sure that um, our referrals that could generate money were going um, the way of uh, uh, of uh, attorneys on a a fair basis, and um, uh, after discussing that issue for a while, um, we um, uh, we came to an agreement that we would we would get funded on a per capita basis based on the number of referrals we gave, um, and that didn't turn out the way uh, the the bar had thought it might because. Most of the referrals that we made were um, the uh, the types that would um, uh, really qualify for pro bono services, not for fee services. And it, when that was uh, 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 when that was recognized by the bar, they were more than willing to uh, l- let us uh, uh, start our own lawyers' re- a referral service. And from that came our first building. And from the equity in our first building, along with um, um, money that we had uh, uh, we had gotten from uh, um, a uh, uh, a malicious prosecu- prosecution suit, um, uh, um, mostly due to Crystal's work, uh, um, we we made we made some money because we were we were constantly being sued for uh, or we were constantly being. Um, uh, threatened by people who were um, slumlords, and um, and uh, at one point we had what was it um, uh, eight lawsuits filed against us for about four hundred million dollars, and after the, the suits were dismissed, um, um, we wound up uh, um, making enough money from the malicious prosecution suit that we brought um, to combine with with the bar the equity we had from the bar to um, uh, buy other office buildings. So uh, um, it was bar funding and it was uh, Crystal's work, which brought on the, uh, the situation, which enabled us to uh, have um, the equity necessary to uh, buy the buildings that we wound up with um, in what in Compton and in Norwalk and in our big building in Legal Aid, which used to be a furniture store. And Is all, that right, Mary Lynch? Yes, and also the small building next door to the to the building on Tustin Avenue, the old Dairy Queen. Yeah, our Dairy Queen parking lot. <laughs> so I want to switch gears and talk about Patricia Herzog. That, her name was mentioned earlier, I believe, by Alan and others. Uh, Bob, Alan, can you, can you tell us about her? Um, I understand that she has an interesting background, and at the time, um, it wasn't easy for uh, women attorneys to find jobs. T- tell us oh. about uh, Patricia. Well, Pat was a uh, a reporter for the Orange County Register, and um, uh, she uh, always wanted to be an attorney um, during or right before World War II. Um, she was at the, uh, um, I think, the University of Texas 
where she was um, uh, double. She had a, a double major program, um, one in uh, uh, economics, and uh, she was going to combine that with law school. And then uh, World War II broke out, and uh, Pat wound up getting her economics degree, but um, uh, felt uh, that she couldn't continue um, in the face of, uh, of the war, um, uh, just uh, going to school. So she uh, uh, started uh, building, working in a factory, building bombers at night to fight the fascists. Um, as here, I remember here in Long Pat, Beach, actually. Uh, yeah, I remember how Pat told that. Um, and she would uh, sing in a band at night. So she, well, she was a, a very, pianist and could, she could play, she could uh, really entertain just uh, on the she piano. Was a, she was in, incredible. Um, but she never lost her, her, uh, um, her, her love of the thought of, of being a lawyer. And um, as the way Pat tells the story, um, she was fired from the register for the uh, offense of getting pregnant. And um, uh, the, um, when, she, when she thought about becoming a lawyer, um, she didn't exactly know how to um, fit in the time to study, but she had looked on, she had looked at this matchbook, which had um, a correspondence uh, um, advertisement for a correspondence school. Um, I think it was LaSalle uh, out of Chicago. And she thought, I can do that. (laughs) And she went to uh, uh, law school by correspondence. And uh, Pat um, would say that um, she had never done anything as hard as going through law school by correspondence. Um, She had no idea how difficult that was. But she did that um, on her own. And when she um, uh, passed the bar, she wanted to work at the DA's office. Um, and <laughs> when she went to work at the, uh, when she applied to work at the DA's office, um, she was told that they couldn't hire her because it would, it would upset the girls <laughs> in the office. <laughs> and it, it was um, after, after that, um, she uh, became the first attorney for uh, the Legal Aid uh, Society of, of Orange County with the bar. And uh, she Nin- never gave up. Yeah, yeah, never gave up. So that was 1958. And, yeah. uh, Go ahead, and, Alan. Uh, you know, she, uh, I, I got to know her because uh, she would come and visit me at the court regularly. Uh, I love the, there's a, a quote from Nancy Bunn, who was one of her, uh, family law uh, colleagues, a longtime family law specialist in Orange County, who said that, you know, above all things, Pat loved the law, and uh, she wanted to make sure that justice was done right, and she did not tolerate it when when that didn't happen. And she would come and visit me, and uh, whenever something did not go right in the courthouse, um, to let off a little steam because she couldn't do that with the judges, and um, I got to know her uh, from from those uh, from those co- communications, and uh, she was really a force of nature. She was uh, 
really very, very smart. And, uh, and um, I think the, uh, one of the, the noted cases that she, you know, had a lot to do with, we call the Sullivan case. And uh, she had a client who was um, uh, a lady getting divorced. And she had spent years, uh, you know, supporting her husband through medical school. And then once he had a medical practice, um, he ended up divorcing her uh, or vice versa. But uh, she came up with the novel uh, idea that uh, the years of contributing to his medical uh, education was the same thing as creating assets that were um, should be the subject of community property in California. And she took that case and argued it before the California Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And she so befuddled the Supreme Court with the logic of her argument that over two years, they could not make a decision. And ultimately, the legislature stepped in and created what was called the Sullivan Law uh, that that basically stood for the same uh, principle, uh, not 100 percent, but but uh, but definitely said it could be considered in uh, in uh, the uh, divorce uh, uh, orders. So um, uh, she she kind of won a a half of a victory anyway, uh, in, in terms of that. And she felt that was, you know, the right, uh, the right outcome, uh, in spite of the fact that the Supreme court, uh, then, then finally ended their case by saying, oh yeah, the legislature took care of it. Follow the, follow the law. <laughs> yeah, the and, law and, and that was such a big deal at the time. Um, the, uh, NBC, Flew her out uh, to New York to be on the Today Show, where they interviewed her. Um, and Pat never left Legal Aid. She was always on the board as long as uh, I can remember. And she was the ACLU in Orange County. We would meet at her house to <laughs> discuss uh, what should be done for the ACLU. So, Bob, you started Legal Aid in 1980. And I know we've touched on this a little bit, but what were some of the highlights and what was the scope and of the and nature of the organization at that time? Well, um, I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to uh, start um, when uh, uh, President Reagan came in with the uh, thought of, uh, of defunding all of legal services. Um, so we were working to... F- to to, to uh, come up with another way of funding legal aid, and um, uh, that in part was how um, uh, IOLTA was created. We were looking for a source of funding, and it seemed that it was possible that um, IOLTA, uh, that interest on lawyers' trust accounts uh, could create enough uh, of a revenue stream that it would um, uh, make up for uh, some of uh, the loss of uh, revenue that we were suffering from uh, uh, President uh, Reagan. And and we really have to thank him in a way because uh, the bar um, throughout the state felt terrible for us because we were losing um, 
so much money. And they said, what can we do? And we said, support IOLTA. And they said, what's that? <laughs> and um, the bar actually did. The, the program was successful because it ran through the bar. And the bar um, got the, uh, the, the legislature uh, to fund it. And after, uh, after that program had been funded, um, there were members of the bar, bar associations, that um, um, had thought, this is a terrible idea. Um, it, there should be no mandatory f um, uh, participation in, in such a program. And they brought it up at the uh, at the conference of delegates. And at the time, I mean, this is such a for me, it's such an interesting story. Um, I'll try to make it interesting. At the time, um, the uh, San Diego bar and the Oakland bar got together sponsoring a repeal of uh, our IOLTA program, at least the mandatory part of it. And it couldn't work without mandatory because of the, of the tax implications. And Orange County and San Francisco got together and supported the uh, the program as it was. And it, so you can imagine, I mean, Orange County has a reputation for being conservative, but it kept IOLTA alive in its infancy. And um, uh, as you, you, you know, the, the program was copied everywhere uh, on, on, uh, nationwide, different versions of it. And it, it, um, for a long time, was the second largest funder for uh, legal services um, throughout the the country. So that was we were the very first fortunate. Project. We were very yeah. fortunate that time to have Bill Wenke uh, be oh. uh, involved in not only uh, OCBA uh, but leadership, but but state, state bar leadership, and he yeah. had a lot to do with. Uh, with changing minds and 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 getting uh, uh, and stopping the uh, uh, demise of IOLTA before it got started, so yeah, Bill Bill was Bill was great. He's I think he split the year of of being president with Robert Raven, and um, yeah. so the combination San Francisco and Orange right. County, right. And, and Rob, I think that that really emphasizes the point that John made earlier, I think, and that is uh, that politics aside, um, you know, doing doing the right thing at the right time, uh, you know, to um, to support something that's important to the entire community is, um, you know, uh, usually Orange County has stepped up and done it and, and done it when it when we needed it. And uh, and OCBA has always stepped up and and done it when we when it was necessary. And Bob, what, weren't you the chair of the committee that uh, drafted that whole idea? Just to be more specific, yeah, really. Bob yeah I, I, I was uh, kind of crazy about how the program worked. I actually, uh, on my own dime, I, I I flew out to Australia to to see how they were running their program, and um, uh, it was. Uh, uh, an amazing experience. I mean, for them, it was just like the normal thing. But for us, it was like, wow, what, what a great idea. Well, afterwards, wasn't there a lot of litigation about whether it should be mandatory or not? And you guys were successful in overcoming yeah. 
challenge? Yeah, it was. Um, it, it 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 wasn't uh, finally um, resolved um, in uh, California until I think it was 1985 when we got uh, our first uh, award, and it was there were I think the the bar had about six million dollars um, uh, to distribute at, at that point, um, and um, uh, the program was um, fought over all the way up to the uh, Supreme Court, um, the U.S. Supreme Court. Our, our, our Supreme Court never took it, uh, took the case. Um, and it, it uh, obviously, uh, the Supreme Court upheld the, uh, the program. And uh, let's hope that, uh, let's hope it stays that way. Hey, Bob, I know you were also involved in the development of the Equal Access Fund. I don't know when that when that uh, started through the state bar, uh, but um, that has become a very significant, uh, you know, funding source uh, on an ongoing basis. So, um, it. it uh, do you remember when? Uh, it was in nineteen ninety nine. Ninety nine. Yes, nineteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And what yeah, is the that- Equal Access Fund? Well, it's, it's administered by the state bar, and uh, it comes uh, through um, through the state through the state to the bar, mm-hmm. and is administered then out to uh, to the illegal uh, aid entities, uh, even some that don't get LSC funding are eligible for uh, the Equal Access Fund. Yeah. And um, so it uh, it has really helped support. I know Kate, you probably know how much money we get from uh, from that source at this point, but uh, it's substantial. Yeah, a lot more now than than it was back then. What what may be of interest to you, Kate, um, was uh, b- back in 1984, um, we uh, uh, won the. Uh, uh, the award for uh, um, Southeast uh, LA. And um, uh, I think um, we got that in part for, for two reasons. Um, one was um, we uh, the proposal we had for two offices and not just uh, uh, centralizing the services um, in, in uh, one area. Uh, because it was just too large an area to uh, to deal with, in, in our view at least. And the second thing that I think had something to do with it was that um, um, through, uh, I guess through just through coincidence, we met the people who were making the decisions on the grant um, by um, offering to uh, take. An experimental program that they uh, that LSC was uh, offering at the time uh, to uh, compete with um, the different ways of providing legal services. They would, I think, they gave us six hundred thousand dollars. Was was that right, Mary Lou? About and, that, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had to uh, administer um, uh, referrals to uh, the different attorneys. Um, who were participating in uh, what they called the fractionalization um, to see what the cost of the program was 
and they set up these uh, very uh, detailed um, uh, um, uh, requirements for what would be referred out and what would be kept by us. And they were so detailed that um, the attorneys who were participating would only get funded for the um, for uh, a fraction of a case um, that they actually worked on it. So if they did the whole case through a judgment, they'd get one um, a, a one full amount. But if they only uh, um, picked up the phone and settled it, they'd only get twenty five percent. But they the attorneys were so angry about the way the program worked and the fractionalization schedule, they all sued at Legal Services Corporation, except for us. And uh, and uh, we got to know the people um, at that time when they were dealing with the mess that they had created. Um, and I think that that had something to do with uh, them uh, trusting us with the uh, uh, with the Southeast uh, um, Award. Can someone tell us about the uh, Amicus Publico and how that was started? Sure. Um, that uh, uh, Crystal again had a lot to do with that, although she probably doesn't recognize um, the work she did as being responsible for it. Um, but um, I used to meet with uh, uh, with Frank Wavedo, um, who was a public member of the uh, Bar Association, the State Bar, and uh, Frank was uh, uh, very uh, bright and very uh, concerned about legal services, but was no fan at all of um, our affordable housing work. And I would get um, um, what I thought was more than my fair share of abuse when we'd talk about uh, that. And uh, I remember at one of our, our breakfast meetings, Frank um, said, well, why don't you do something that will make you friends instead of enemies? And I said, well, why don't we create a uh, pro bono program? And Frank liked that. And uh, he actually made that happened. He did so much of the work. He got uh, Judge Ferguson together. He got, um, uh, who was the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals judge from Fullerton. He got um, uh, Gar Schallenberger from uh, um, Rattan and Tucker together. And we had our first meeting and that led to uh, um, uh, Sheila Sonenschein, uh, Judge uh, Sonenschein getting involved. Jack Trotter getting involved, and um, uh, while Legal Aid supported the effort at first through a grant from the Legal Services Corporation, it split off and became what it is today, which is phenomenal. Um, but it, the it, the, uh, the the idea for it came from um, our um, our our meeting with Frank Wavedo and his. Uh, um, his his effort to draw us away from uh, doing affordable housing work, Crystal, and uh, it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. That's right. No, it didn't. So, Bob and others, you you all mentioned Legal Services Corporation, and I'm wondering if you could just uh, touch high level on um, uh, the impact Legal Services Corporation uh, had on legal charities, including. Community Legal Aid SoCal, and including um, any restrictions that may have been placed on on uh, 
charities receiving funds from the Legal Services Corporation and the impact that had? Oh, sure. Um, the Legal Services Corporation, um, when I got there, was, uh, you know, uh, was suffering from the uh, from the effort of first Reagan and then uh, later um, uh, under Clinton. Um, uh, uh, the contract uh, for America. Who was that? Um, uh, Newt Gingrich. Um, they had the same idea to um, to de- to uh, um, really uh, throttle uh, um, legal services so that it couldn't do things um, that uh, the that the conservatives in Congress didn't like. Um, and during the Reagan um, era. Uh, I believe the uh, funding, LSC funding, that was was starting to be restricted, so that we couldn't undertake a, um, uh, a lot of the eff- uh, a lot of the uh, impact efforts um, with their money. But we had other sources of money, IOLTA, um, so that didn't really matter. Um, we could do what. Uh, what we need, what we needed to do for the community by just using um, uh, um, other sources of funding. Um, in nineteen, I think it was nineteen ninety six, they find uh, uh, the the um, congressional uh, oversight folks finally figured out that the idea um, of restricting legal services funding would not work without um, uh, restricting all the money that we'd get, including IOLTA. So if we signed the agreement, <laughs> we, we, we could not violate um, any of their um, uh, uh, prohibitions, which I remember in, in 96, I think included the uh, crystal. You remember this? It was, um, uh, we couldn't do jail conditions, which we were working on with the ACLU at the time. Um, we couldn't do... Uh, uh, um, class, class actions. actions. Yeah, we couldn't do class actions, yeah. and we couldn't do um, welfare uh, reform. Welfare reform, um, and, and uh, we couldn't do any uh, uh, evictions that were from what public housing that uh, um, uh, dealt with um, drugs, um, drugs, drugs, and. And uh, I, I remember that it, around that time, it also got uh, um, much more uh, complicated to uh, work with uh, undocumented uh, uh, folks. Uh, and because of all those restrictions, what we had done with uh, Amicus Publico became so important to offer a full range of services to the community. Because if we couldn't do it, um, Amicus Publico, which became the Public Law Center, could. And if we had not created this that whole uh, that uh, that whole network of uh, a program serving the community, it would have been much more difficult to uh, to provide a, a full range uh, of services because of the restrictions we had uh, agreed to to get um, uh, legal services uh, corporation funding. Hey, Bob, on a related thing, um, you helped out with develop a tax program called ICANN. Oh, me? yeah, that was fun. <laughs> uh, um, well, I mean, now it, it just seems like a, 
you know, it, we use technology for uh, for everything. But back then, um, it was it was really new. And the uh, idea of uh, uh, of do doing something to help poor people um, get uh, um, tax refunds, their earned income tax credit, um, was uh, something that we were really looking into because at the time, um, what would happen, um, although the earned income tax credit might be generous, it might offer a few thousand dollars, I don't know, three or four thousand uh, dollars at, at maxing out, um, the uh, tax preparers would say, would you like your money right away? And what, what do people know? They said, sure. So uh, they ended up splitting. They ended up giving them a loan for the refund, splitting the refund with them. The, the interest rates would come in at 700%. For, um, and so it was just the biggest ripoff that you could imagine. And they, what they were doing is ripping off poor people. Um, so we thought we could do better. And we created ICANN eFile. And ICANN eFile, um, the, the idea of it was to enable folks to do their own taxes um, using our system. And we didn't know, um, and this was new, and we didn't know how it would work. And I still remember the, uh, uh, the first two uh, um, test subjects that we had um, who came in. Um, and, um, they, uh, uh, with our help started using our ICANN system. There were two women, um, they were Hispanic and, uh, had the uh, limited, uh, English proficiency, but they, uh, they started using our system. And after they got four screenshots into the system, um, they could do it on their own. And as they were doing it, we backed away to, to see if we could get them to do it by themselves. And they, after about four screenshots, they started doing it. And we were just kind of standing back and watching them. And uh, they started crying. And, um, and we were like, oh, my God, um, what did we do? De <laughs> develop technology to make people cry? Um, and um, uh, they had gotten to the page uh, about how much money they were getting back. That's when they started crying. Um, and it, it, it just, it was an odd kind of feeling that we thought this could be, this could really work. And I think we, we had it um, up and running um, what, for about a, a decade, Mary Lou, was that right? Yeah, uh, we started it in 2002 and then we continued it to 2011. Yeah, and while this was going on, the tax preparers had a group, um, the Free File Alliance, they called them, and uh, they would never let us in the Free File Alliance meetings. We said, we want to be part of the group, too, um, and they wouldn't let us do it. So um, the IRS would, would do the English-to-English -English translation for us. They would tell us what the group decided and um, how we would fit in, but they always wanted to get, to get our funding eliminated. Um, and they finally did after uh, about 10 years. And the reason they wanted to get it eliminated was they didn't like the um, the whole idea of people doing um, these uh, tax uh, forms by themselves. And I think the um, 
the IRS is now experimenting with the same program, virtually the same program that we offered. And the, I think they're running into the uh, the same obstacles that the uh, Tree File Alliance doesn't want poor people doing it by themselves. Um, our idea um, was so popular at the time that we started, I forgot what year exactly, that uh, Maria Shriver um, actually called um, our office, her her, her uh, the head of her staff did and asked if we wanted to partner with her. And of course, after we fell over, we said, sure. And for years we worked with um, her um, uh, through, throughout the state of California. And we had at one point um, in our heyday, I think 500 partners nationwide. And for the run of the program, we brought in over $840 million fee free for uh, in refunds for uh, for poor people and the refunds mostly were um, uh, earned income tax credits so the program proved that um, the power that that poor people had if you just made a system that was useful to them and it it proved that um, um, it, it could really be um, uh, a success and and uh, helpful and uh, um, we uh, we were just so happy to be able to do that and so happy to be able to work with Maria Shriver um, in uh, uh, running it throughout California. Bob, it, 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 what you, what I alluded to when I was talking was how you incredibly have taken the concept of self-help and technology. This isn't technology for efficiency. This is technology as a tool to empower poor people. And exactly. I, I think we really need to understand that there's a whole range of options out there that we're even, I think we're scratching the surface of in the new generation of legal services. And you have both on the self-help, which you haven't talked about a lot, but the self-help side and the use of technology, it, it is, you have proven the concept. Well, um, the, um, the, uh, um, the self-help part with the court um, was uh, largely Alan's doing. Um, yeah. I, I really have to give him credit. I, I, I still remember um, the, the whole thought of, of going to see Alan. I did not know him at the time. And I thought, well, this is going to sound like a crazy idea. And uh, <laughs> he'll throw me out of his office. And I got about two sentences out. And, and he starts outlining how the program would work. <laughs> so, I mean, um, we were... Uh, uh, you know, we were just doing things the way Alan told us to, and the, the program eventually, the the uh, the legal services part of the program eventually was so popular. And Alan won the um, uh, the Justice Achievement Award from uh, um, the uh, uh, Center Court for State Administrators. Yeah, the, well, what, what, our, what's the name? It was uh, the National Association for Court Management. That's yeah. Correct. Well, you know. And we won the statewide Ralph Clips Award for yeah, ICANN did. as well. And ICANN turned into a really terrific co collaboration between um, between Legal Aid Society and the Superior Court at the time because uh, we were in the process of trying to develop self-help support services using the computer. Y2K created a situation where I was able to get all of the the technology 
uh, away from the County of Orange, who was a terrible technology partner for, for, for a court for many years. And as because I was able to do that and fund our own technology staff, uh, we were able to work uh, in collaboration uh, with Legal Aid to uh, create uh, and expand ICANN to include, um, gosh, uh, I don't know how many different, how many modules did we have? We had 13 modules that we, that we had that covered everything from uh, domestic violence, restraining orders, uh, all the probate uh, stuff, um, uh, and regular divorce cases, small claims, um, uh, unlawful detainer cases, uh, just all kinds of uh, places where the court was having difficulty servicing this increasing population of self-represented litigants. And we knew we had to do something to improve that. And ultimately, I can using the same kind of technology where you had a guide, you had forms, uh, we were able to we were able to translate that to English, Spanish, Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And at one point we had some in Somali, I understand. Yes. Um, but uh, the, the, we, they were in a kiosk type of environment where the parties could just sit down and use the guide to get through. Uh, and they, you know, if they couldn't get through it in one session, they could save their work. They could come back. So the creation of those opportunities in self-help centers in the courthouse um, really changed the way where uh, the court was doing business. The second and really important part of that whole thing was in addition to helping the litigants, we ended up with e-filing. That's the that's the e-file part of I can e-file. And uh the electronic filing meant that we could capture those documents electronically, create electronic files, and it took us years, but uh, we started in 1989 uh, creating electronic files rather than paper files, and little by little, we got, uh, uh, we got to where everything is electronic and there are no paper files, which was, my, which was the goal that we, that our our judges went along with and uh, and our technology committee uh, helped me uh, make it happen and certainly bob and his staff were key uh elements to to making that all happen yeah it doesn't seem like a big deal now but back then no one was doing it so yeah. it was it was uh, uh now, it took some convincing right now they're talking about uh chat boxes chat bots and AI uh taking over all of what we what we were doing then. Yeah. We were actually able to expand um ICANN to uh several states, including Georgia, Oklahoma, Massachusetts, Minnesota, and North Carolina. And uh last week Virginia down, as well, if I recall yeah. also. It that's yeah. what I found, but uh they were filing about four thousand filings per month in all of the, the seven states. So, um, I mean, I think we were the new kids on the block with that, but it required to have the new court forms too. Remember that was a big 
effort to create the form so you didn't have pleadings. Once they created the forms, we were able to go in yeah. and work with the court to actually yeah, use yeah. the uh, to use ICANN. That was a project that I worked on for many years with the Judicial Council. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, impact litigation. We mentioned uh, the impact, and John, you talked about that as well, impact litigation and, and the work that uh, Legal Aid has done in this area. I want to direct this question to Crystal. Crystal, you started with Legal Aid in 1975. You oversaw the organization's litigation program. Yes. Uh, can you talk to about can you talk to us about the the nature and scope of the litigation program in the 70s? We looked at client surveys as John mentioned legal aids had started doing client surveys and housing and health were always the two critical problems that clients faced. So in the late 1970s, we began to focus on new strategies to deal with these problems. We did health by doing community-based advocacy and housing uh, by litigating in a series of lawsuits against Orange County and a number of cities uh, to address the need for decent and affordable housing for our clients. Uh, We litigated with Western Center on Law and Poverty, Legal Aid Foundation of Long Beach, and the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, uh, filing lawsuits that challenged legally inadequate housing elements and exclusionary and discriminatory land use practices. Uh, The first lawsuit we filed was against the County of Orange, of, on its housing element, which really wasn't a housing element, it was a three-page document titled Draft Housing Element. The county had been approving thousands of units in the unincorporated area without addressing the need for affordable housing. Uh, we met as a courtesy with Supervisor Diedrich, and I remember him at the end of the meeting leaning against a door frame saying, well, you've thrown down the gauntlet. Now what are you going to do? Well, we sued. And the end result was the county adopted an inclusionary housing program, which required developers to provide moderate income units and low income units if subsidies were available. A supervisor Riley once told me that the existence of the inclusionary housing program program made it possible for county supervisors to approve a number of subsidized housing units for low-income people, our clients, which would not otherwise have been approved. Uh, In Stocks versus City of Irvine, uh, we went all the way to the California Supreme Court on a standing issue, whether non-residents could sue a city for exclusionary land use policies and the California Supreme Court adopted a very broad definition of standing in contrast to the standing definition that the US Supreme Court adopted. Uh, We've filed against a number of other cities, which I won't go into. Um, And then in the 1980s, we had to turn our attention to the homeless problem in Orange County. Uh, In one instance, the city of Santa Ana decided they were going to do a homeless sweep of the Civic Center 
So they had spotters up on the roof and police officers down on the ground. And the spotter would tell the police officer who to arrest. And somehow it was always homeless people for the most innocent of things, like plucking a leaf off a tree. Lawyers who were leaving the courthouse were not arrested. And all of the people who were arrested were taken to the um, uh, sports stadium. And everybody had a large number put on their arm, which was really shocking at the time. Uh, in that litigation, we worked with the private bar and the public law center to challenge this, what the city had done. And the result was the city had no more homeless sweeps. We also were involved in litigation against the county for spraying malathion on homeless people when we had the <laughs> epidemic. And we were involved in litigation against Santa Ana uh, for removing property of homeless people and throwing it away. And the, the homeless litigation continued uh, when we worked on litigation on the Santa Ana River Trail. So it, uh, I, I think at least at one point in time, it had a positive impact in that the subsidized units were built and we changed a lot of cities policies and, and procedures for building affordable housing. And Crystal, uh, so looking back um, at the housing litigation that you referenced that was brought by legal aid um, since the 70s, what, what, what would you say are the, the, the larger impact uh, that that litigation had on the county? Well, I know that subsidized housing units, which would be affordable to our clients, would not have been built except for the litigation settlement in uh, Sherman versus County of Orange. And I think cities started paying attention to their housing elements, uh, making sure that when they made land use decisions and approved developments, that they were always consistent with their housing elements. Uh, we did sue Fullerton uh, because they turned down a county funded homeless shelter in the city of Fullerton and that wound up being settled with Fullerton contributing money to build a homeless shelter. And now Fullerton is one of the biggest advocates for assisting homeless clients. So I think we made the issue public and hopefully got some good units out of it. That's amazing. Um, Kate, are there any particular impact litigation cases that have been pursued by CLA SoCal in recent years? Sure, yeah, thanks. Um, so obviously we've continued our litigation with respect to affordable housing in the county. Most recently, uh, we settled a suit against the city of Huntington Beach, which resulted in the creation of a 400 additional units of affordable housing in Huntington Beach. But I think sort of the goal of our, our new systemic impact unit is to expand impact litigation beyond just the realm of housing and benefits, which is sort of the traditional bread and butter impact litigation work of legal aid programs. Um, so in addition to some housing cases, we also filed suit um, challenging a county policy that required 
applicants for general relief to provide proof of a social security number. The policy essentially had the effect of denying eligible immigrant populations, U visa, T visa, and VAWA applicants, those are survivors of crime who are applying for immigration relief, from receiving critical benefits because they're not eligible to apply for social security until several years after their immigration applications are filed. Um, the county agreed to settle the suit and change their policy, which has resulted in, you know, I don't even know how many, but hundreds of um, eligible immigrants um, receiving aid that they were entitled to. Uh, we also filed suit against uh, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services over their interpretation of the Violence Against Women Act, um, which made it harder for victims of domestic violence to obtain immigration relief. Um, we challenged their interpretation that a victim had to res reside with their abuser in the United States and that it was inconsistent with the statute. And shortly after we filed that suit, USCIS changed their interpretation to the broader interpretation that we sought. So again, resulting in thousands probably of immigrants being eligible for this relief who were not um, eligible before. Um, Final, well, I have two more. <laughs> we filed in a family law case, we filed an appeal over mutual two mutual restraining orders that were issued by the court, which historically is not a good idea because it makes it very hard for police officers to decide how to enforce the order if they show up and both parties were there. Um, the decision clarified statewide that mutual restraining orders are disfavored and the court actually needs to evaluate the facts and identify a primary abuser. And then last but not least, um, during the pandemic, the Orange County Social Security Administration um, successfully obtained a stay of all social security appeals in the Central District of California. And that meant that hundreds of individuals in Southern California whose benefits were improperly denied could not appeal those decisions and were without, without any benefits for months, and in some cases, well over a year in the midst of the pandemic. We were able to negotiate a settlement with SSA and the court agreed to lift the stay and create a system to prioritize cases for those who had been waiting the longest for relief. So that's just a couple of examples, but we continue to really look at the cases that are coming out of our substantive units to inform what actions that we're taking um, impact-wise. We've also been really active in providing input to local legislators on pending legislation and how they, what the impacts they will have on our clients. And Kate, if I might ask uh, Kate and, or Crystal, uh, this, the idea of working in collaboration with other groups, you've, uh, Kate, I understand you're restructuring to emphasize and expand the impact litigation, but the question of all these other areas can also be done with, in conjunction with other people, like health was, I believe, done with Crystal. She didn't do it internally, but she had, there was an attorney coordinating. Can either of you speak to how that aspect worked, multiplying the effect? So on most, at least at this point, and I, I, I would say probably Crystal would agree to this, most of our impact litigation is not us alone. We always have a community partner who sort of has boots on the ground expertise in the issue that can really inform litigation strategy and, and, and be the voice of, of our clients as we, as we move the litigation forward. And Kate, you, you succeeded Bob as executive director um, for Community Legal Aid SoCal, and you've held that position, as you said, since January of 2017. 
So if you could just tell us about the program, where it is today and your vision for the future. Yes, thank you. Um, so first of all, I want to acknowledge, I think it's so fitting that we are doing this right now um, in this year, which happens to be the 65th anniversary of our program. Um, and I, I, it really was striking to me that, you know, this, this organization was founded by lawyers' wives. And I could have been a founding member of this organization as a lawyer's wife, but I'm also a lawyer myself. So, I mean, I thought what John said about his wife really resonated with me that 65 years ago, this would not have been possible for me. So um, I really commend the Orange County Bar Association for the support of their program and, and how we've gotten to be where we are today. Um, we've gone through a lot. I mean, we're essentially, we look like a very different program from when I started in 2017. First of all, our budget has nearly doubled from approximately 8 million when I started in 2017 to nearly 16 million this year. And our staff has grown from 90 um, to 141. The years between 2018 and 2020, so keep in mind that this part of this was during the pandemic, so in response to both internal and external feedback, we went through a complete rebrand of the program, unifying our Los Angeles and Orange County service areas under a new name and committed to delivering holistic services to our client community. And I think that's, again, a through line from what John talked about, about how like if, if someone comes to me with a health problem, they've got all these other problems and I'm only helping with them with one thing, what am I really doing for them? So we're really committed to um, delivering holistic services. And that commitment included restructuring the legal program from sort of a generalist model to substantive legal units, um, including a new immigration unit, which didn't exist in 2017, and a case management team. And this shift really allows us to provide greater depth of service to our clients and um, opportunities for professional development for the staff of the program. Um, another huge thing, if you look at our website, um, in 2020, we made a real serious commitment to creating a culture of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion through our JEDI initiative. Um, and we are super proud that this year we were selected as a recipient of the State Bar of California's silver DEI leadership seal. And we were one of only four legal aid programs in the whole state to get that recognition, which was really important to us in recognition of all the work that we've done to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace and in the legal profession. We've also reconstituted our pro bono program, and it has really flourished, building relationships with the private bar, engaging new and returning pro bono volunteers. And I'm happy to say we had over 12,000 hours of pro bono support in 2022. Um, we also established a new mission and vision statement and a set of organiza organizational values, accountability, collaboration, compassion, equity, and trust. These values are foundational to who we are as a program, and they inform our conduct not only with each other, but also how we interact with the community. Um, so I just... We've come a long way. We've accomplished a lot since 2017. And again, much of it was during the pandemic. Um, I think as we are looking to the future, as we are always doing, we recognize that one thing is certain, and that is that the needs of our clients and the community are constantly evolving, and we really need to adapt to meet those needs. Um, so to that end in 2022, and I think this also 
harkens back to something that John said about really getting input from the community and making sure that we're centering our clients' needs. Um, we com uh, we completed a community needs assessment, and we are just now in the middle of a strategic planning process that will be informed by the findings of the community needs assessment and will guide our work for the next five years. And then finally, we have an internal committee that's currently working on taking the lessons that we learned about operating remotely and providing virtual services to clients, taking those lessons that we learned from the pandemic to increase flexibility for staff while also increasing access for our clients. And, and what is your current involvement with the OCBA? With the yes. And again, another through line, the OCBA has been at our side the entire time. Um, we continue to receive support annually from the OCBA Charitable Fund, which we are so grateful for. Um, for the past several years, it's primarily been supporting our work with survivors of domestic violence. We are also actively participating in the pro bono committee of the Orange County Bar Association. And we've been involved um, in a project with the OCBA around the collaborative courts and delivering services there. And that's just a small piece of it. I know there's more. One of the things that I uh... I, I uh, wanted to commend you for as well is the um, work that you've been doing with law students, um, a large number and the experience that they're getting in working with your staff uh, has, uh, has really been in incredible. I think uh, I've having talked to a number of them now, uh, really, uh, uh, I think you've been uh, really uh, engaged them and um, made them realize what an important part of uh, the legal profession uh, legal aid yeah. is. Yeah, and our commitment to our summer students is, is a, it's a serious commitment that we've made. And we we're very excited that starting last summer, we made a commitment to pay every single law student that comes to work for us for the summer rather than relying on uh, free volunteer hours, which is, is part of our JEDI commitment to really make it possible for folks from diverse backgrounds who may not have acts, may not have been able to consider public interest work without some sort of funding um, to do that. So that's a big commitment that we've made. And we're also super excited to be involved with UCI in a new partnership to basically uh, try to diversify the profession by by working with them as they're going through the admissions process to basically guarantee cer certain students a summer position so that we have just hired our first, we've just committed to our first student in that program that will start next year. Thank you all so much for being here, Bob, Alan, Kate, Mary, John, Crystal. Uh, what a wealth of knowledge. Uh, thank you for walking us through the amazing history and work of Community Legal Aid SoCal. Uh, the organization through, through you all has greatly improved access to justice, as Kate said, for 65 years now in Orange County and beyond. So just thank you so much for your work and thank you for taking the time to be with us here today. Thank you.